Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. Physicist Dave Rogstad is off today. On today's podcast, is truth being promoted in today's academy? Ken addresses that question on this podcast, part one of two, on a student's guide to liberal learning. Uh, Ken, true to your nature, you've been reading books and you've come across another one that merits attention, right? Yeah, I was uh, on vacation, but even on vacation, I read books, maybe especially <laughs> when I'm on vacation. And I did. I came across a book that I'd purchased some time ago and um, didn't really have time to take a look at it. But I've come across a book that I want to talk about, a an author that I think is uh, very, very thoughtful and reflective. So a lot of discussion about uh, things like uh, education and books and universities and uh, the issues of uh, relativism in, mm. in truth and morality. All right. That sounds like a good thing to discuss. Let's get into it. Well, this little book that I read, and it's uh, not very long. Uh, and see, I think it's uh, merely... 53 pages. So this is a small, small book. It's entitled A Student's Guide to Liberal Learning. And the author is James V. Shaw. Uh, Professor Shaw was a uh, Roman Catholic scholar, his, uh, born in 1928 and died just a couple years ago in 2019, Joe. And of course, right after his name are the letters S.J., which indicates that uh, uh, Professor Shaw was part of the Society of Jesus. Uh, for Maybe for some of you who are not familiar with that, the Jesuits uh, were part of the Counter-Reformation. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church responded to the Protestant Reformation with their own Reformation, and one of the developments was the Jesuits, who were intended uh, to be uh, responders to the Protestant Reformation. And of course, the Jesuits have, have always been one of the most scholarly um, orders within the Catholic Church. And uh, I found Shaw to be very interesting. A little bit more about him. He was a professor, uh, a writer. In fact, uh, I think he wrote almost 40 books. So very prolific author. Uh, he was a philosopher by by nature, and and in fact, Joey was an expert on G.K. Chesterton. Mm. Chesterton, of course, a British author who uh, became Roman Catholic, and many people who uh, love C.S. Lewis and love uh, Tolkien uh, also like Chesterton, who influenced both Tolkien and Lewis. And I, I would say from this start that Shaw is an interesting individual. I think it is accurate to say that he was both politically and theologically conservative. And uh, that's not always the case within the Catholic Church, uh, particularly the time in which uh, Shaw wrote. And so um, he's an interesting figure. I think he is a, what would I call him, a theological uh, and maybe political ally to uh, evangelicals. Um, and of course, that's something I want to talk a little bit uh, about. Um, sometimes Protestants aren't sure what to make of the Catholic Church. Um, 
And of course, uh, for 500 years, Protestants and Catholics have uh, had conflict over both doctrine and uh, various ideas. But I think, Joe, uh, that in many respects, conservative Catholics, now, now again, I'm speaking more theologically than I am politically, although I think it's important to recognize that many things we face today in the world, uh, they take a political face. That is, uh, many of the challenging issues to, to historic Christianity involve at least political ideas. And I am of the opinion that conservative Protestants uh, can learn from conservative Catholics and that conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants can be at least uh, worldview allies. And uh, I think some of the things that Shaw will, that I'll share with you today, uh, and of course, carrying it over into our next program, I think are things that uh, Protestants from many different traditions can appreciate. And there are some things we'll disagree with them about as well. All right. So you have uh, 10 points. Uh, I assume you got these from Shaw that you'll be covering in two podcasts. So we're going to take five and then five more in the second one. That's right. That's the way we'll we'll traverse. Well, let me begin by um, making some points that Shaw makes that I think are very, very meaningful and helpful. So our first point here is that some learning is is an intrinsic good rather than just being an instrumental good. And I don't hear enough about that these days. Um, the idea here is that an intrinsic value or an intrinsic good is something that's good in itself. It doesn't, it doesn't have to take you anywhere. It doesn't have to do anything for you. It's just something that is good in itself. It's it's a it's an end rather than a means to an end. Mm. And and contrasting that in an intrinsic good with an instrumental good, an instrumental good would be something that is good because it does take you somewhere. I think a good a great example of an in, of a uh, a instrumental good is medicine. Um, you know, I took my high blood pressure pills this morning. I don't think they're good in and of themselves. In fact, they don't they don't always go down my throat all so easy. So sometimes <laughs> I don't enjoy taking them, but they're good because of what they do. They lower my blood pressure. Well, there are some things that um, Shaw says are good in and of themselves. And here's a quote from his book, again, A Student's Guide to Liberal Learning. He says, the important things Aristotle told us are to be known for their own sakes, not for some useful or pleasurable purpose, however useful or pleasurable they may also be. I think that that's a, that's a very important point today, Joe, that uh, if we think back to Western civilization, and I not only want to say that I think conservative Catholics and conservative Protestants can be worldview allies. But I think the amazing thing is that if we look at Western civilization and we look at the people that in many ways kind of forged Western civilization, and here I mean philosophically speaking, people like Plato and Aristotle, 
What I think is interesting, Joe, is that Plato and Aristotle are more and more allies of historic Christianity. Why? Because uh, Plato and Aristotle believed in God. Now, it wasn't the God, wasn't the biblical God, it wasn't Yahweh. And of course, they lived 500 years before Christ, so it couldn't be Christian in orientation. But they believed in God. They believed that um, God was the author of the world. They also believed in objective moral principles. Uh, in fact, Plato and Aristotle, probably their enemy, maybe their chief enemy, would be moral and um, relativism with, with regard to truth. So in many ways, in this world that we're living in now, in what I'm going to call a postmodern world, what I'm, what I'm increasingly thinking is a post-Christian world, people like Aristotle and Plato, um, they fit with what most conservative Christians think. And so, you know, Tertullian, one of the great church fathers from North Africa, well known for his comment, you know, there can never be, there will never be any agreement between Athens and Jerusalem. And of course, Athens would be the center of Greek philosophy. Jerusalem would be the center of the, the biblical faith. Um, I think today, in many respects, um, there is there is definitely uh, an ally. And so in Western civilization, uh, and this would be affirmed not only by some of the great Greek philosophers, but it would also be affirmed by some of the great Roman philosophers. Here I'm thinking of people like Cicero. Uh, Cicero wrote a book called The Hortensius, and St. Augustine got a hold of it before he was a saint, and um, it converted Augustine to philosophy. He, he just decided from that point on that he would dedicate his life to finding the truth. Now, unfortunately, the Hortensius has been lost. Um, it didn't survive into the modern world, and there are a number of those types of works that, that didn't survive. But you have in the ancient world people who believe that truth is objective, that morality is objective, that truth and goodness and beauty are objective. They're part of the created world, and they're part of us. And part of our purpose, part of our significant purpose, is discovering uh, truth, goodness, and beauty. And so here Shaw, as a Catholic theologian, and uh, again, he cut his teeth on people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, and, and we already know that he was a, uh, an expert on people like Chesterton. Well, these are issues that, that Chesterton and Lewis and Tolkien, I mean, you watch, the, you watch the movies. I was just the other day, I was watching one of the Tolkien films. The idea is very powerful that there, there's, there's good in the world. And because there's good, there can also be real evil in the world. So I love this idea of recognizing an intrinsic good rather than just a mere instrumental good. Joe, many people today would say there is no intrinsic good. There are only instrumental goods. They, they take you somewhere that you hope to go. So mm. that's our first important point that, that Shaw makes. And uh, a, a question on that. Uh, sure. Would you say, or maybe uh, Shaw says it, and maybe you would as well, that 
uh, we are uh, not getting so much of that type of instruction uh, in the academy today or in culture that there are intrinsic goods. That is, everything is about, are you going to be able to support the lifestyle you're looking for, um, you know, make enough money to live where you want and have all your needs taken care of. Those are instrumental goods. So choose the career, take the education track that you need to get to those. But you've, you've brought this up many times over the podcast, philosophy bakes no bread. Well, uh, maybe we need to learn more philosophy so that we can uh, have those intrinsic goods. I think you're right on target. I think that's exactly right. In fact, Joe, uh, this book by Shaw um, was written in 2000, um, but I think he was a he was prescient. He was he was prophetic in recognizing where our university system was going. And you know, I I'm going to make a few controversial comments on this program. One of the points I would make, and I, I think Shaw would agree with me. Joe, if I were starting all over today, you know, I, I started college in the late 70s, in the early 80s. I took uh, I took a degree in philosophy. I took another degree in history, and then I have a graduate degree in theology. If I were starting today, I'm not sure I would do that. Um, not only are some of the great universities, and, and by the way, I always wanted to go to a great university. I remember being a young Christian student, and I recognized how important my mind really was. I mean, when I grew up, Joe, I, we've talked about these kinds of things. I, I was not a serious student. I, I wanted to be a professional ball player. And I didn't want anything to get in the way of that, even my studies. But when I became a Christian, I, I, through the help of some Christian teachers, they taught me that, um, you know, our mind is a gift from God. And it's something, you know, as the, the National Negro College Fund says so well, it's not something you want to waste. Well, I wanted to go to a great university. And I remember thinking at one point I, I might go to Saint I might go to Johns Hopkins University, which was which is in Maryland. And I was thinking, wow, you know, can I apply there? Could I be accepted to the school? Well, here is one of my controversial statements. I think some of the truly great universities in America, um, they have uh, lost their way. Uh, some of the great universities in America, they have accepted things like relativism and truth, that there is no ultimate objective truth. There's only relative truth, truth for you, truth for me, you know, uh, kind of a post-truth society. Many of them have also recognized that there's no ultimate or objective standard of morality. Uh, and may I say, Joe, I even think that Christian colleges, while they would still affirm that there's ultimate truth and ultimate morality, have nonetheless accepted kind of uh, political ideas. Um, woke political ideas are very strong at some Christian schools. And the context for that is Christians care a lot about justice. But some of the Christian universities have accepted kind of uh, 
what I would call extreme political views of justice. So I'm not sure I would if I were to start all over again. I'm not sure I would be as attracted to the universities knowing uh, what's what's out there. And again, I think Shaw does us a favor. Um, if he were to rewrite this book today, it might be even more uh, critical. But that's our, our first point. And the second one builds on it. His second point is finding truth is the human mind's primary purpose. Finding truth is the human mind's primary purpose. And this is what Shaw says. Um, he says the human mind must also choose to use itself properly to achieve its primary purpose, which is to find the truth of things. When the human mind is functioning normally, when he is being what he is given by nature to be, he is using his mind. Well, that's that's a challenging comment for many people today. Many people don't think that you can have ultimate truth. Many people think that our finiteness, our limitedness, our biases, our prejudices, uh, they stand in the way of our mind discovering truth. But again, Shaw, he is in that kind of classical uh Christian ways of thinking that, uh, um, again, the idea is that all people are made in the image of God. All people are recipients of common grace. Jesus said, the good Lord, he lets the sunshine and the rain fall on the just and the unjust. So the pagans, they get sunshine and rain. They're the recipients of of. Uh, common grace. And of course, everybody is the recipient of general revelation. And so the implication there is that the pagans are going to get some things right. And in fact, if we can bring that up today, it's interesting to me, Joe, that all of the major world religions, or at least the primary ones, so Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, they all have the second five of the Ten Commandments. Mm. Now, that, of course, should tell us something very powerful. I mean, the second five are pretty important. Things like not engaging in illicit sexual activity, not committing adultery, also uh, not lying, not stealing. These are critical moral principles. Now, Part of the problem with the first five, however, is that pagan nations, and I, I think we can speak in a similar vein to the non-Christian world religions, speaking now outside of the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition and even outside of the Islamic tradition, pagan religions are going to have um, wrong ideas about the nature of God. They're going to have wrong ideas about worshiping. But what I think we see here in Shaw is that as a Catholic, he is appealing to that, that great uh, tradition that says, look, we all know that there is truth, goodness, and beauty. And we may have to work really hard to find it. And we may have to debate with people about exactly what it means, but it's there. 
And Shaw would say that when the human mind works properly, and I think what he clearly means, when the imago Dei is at work, um, its primary purpose is to discover the truth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm troubled by sending my children to a university that doubts whether there is objective truth. And Shaw is going to say some other things uh, a little bit later. He says, not only he says, in effect, that not only you should assume that students who sit down at a desk at a major university, they're going to deny objective truth and they're going to deny objective morality. But he says uh, the professors go even further. Mm. So these are these are challenging ideas. Yeah. Uh, now when you uh, when Shaw says when the human mind is functioning normally, when he is being given what he is given by nature to be, he is using his mind. So back to the university, if if, if a student is not uh, encountering truth, not discovering it, is the mind somehow uh, not being used, not being expressed the way it should be? Is there some flaw, something to overcome there? Yeah, I I think what's critical there is that there really is a very different view of of human nature, a very different view of human anthropology. The classical view is that uh, human beings have been given the equipment to be able to track the truth. Now, again, this makes perfect sense in a Jewish and Christian and Islamic context. It also makes sense within Plato and Aristotle context as well. Uh, but in a postmodern world, well, um, maybe maybe there is no ultimate truth. Or even if there is, you can't know it. And your society, your culture, your finitude, the things you have been taught stand in the way of all of that. Um, and so in some respects, Colleges have become places where they encourage you to rethink the classical Western civilization approach to these types of issues, which, which again, is kind of startling to me. I mean, I, I think back to being 20 years old and thinking, wow, I'd love to go to a truly great university, a place where I'd have great teachers and I would be in classes with students that felt the same way I did about truth and and were vigorous in in their in their study of it. Um, I think in many respects today, if you go to a university, oftentimes the students will be taught things that challenge some of the ideas that their parents take for granted or have taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Here's a third point again that builds Shaw. Uh, truth is objective. It corresponds to reality and serves to set us free. Truth is objective. It corresponds to reality and serves to set us free. He says this, the truth will not only make us free, but it is itself free. We all come, in fact, to know the same truth. Otherwise, we could not communicate at all with other with, with one another. This is why the modern day denial of truth is at the same time a denial of real human communication and consequently in place of truth an exalt an 
exaltation of power. Now, I, I want our listeners to understand what Shaw is talking about here, Joe. A big part of the postmodern skepticism that we're we're encountering today is that language is equivocal. Language can't be trusted to give you the straight up truth. It's, you know, it's a vehicle, but it's all over the place. Um, you know, we have ideas like deconstructionism, where language isn't objective. It has to be deconstructed uh, to get underneath it. And we discover when we do that power is more important than objective truth. So the idea here that Shaw is getting at is uh, think of how important language is to Jews and Christians and to Muslims. Um, you know, God gave us a revelation. Uh, the Jews and Christians had a text, a biblical text. Uh, that was so influential that in the first couple hundred years of Christianity, Christianity exploded with developing texts. So much so later that, you know, the Protestants were even more textual, um, pressing the idea of, of, of the word of God. But Shaw says, look, if uh, unless truth is objective uh, and unless it corresponds to reality, you know, then then how can we know it? And the idea here is that truth in a traditional sense is a correspondence view of truth. And all I simply mean by that is that if your belief or your ideas match what's real, then you have the truth. So truth is not based upon your opinion or my opinion or the collective opinion of human beings. Truth is that which is real. And so the idea here is, again, that um, truth corresponds to reality. Truth is objective. There's a real truth. It's a capital T truth. It corresponds to reality. And there's nothing more important than knowing it. The truth will set you free. Um, that's the very purpose for our being. And again, Shaw is quite a breath of fresh air, in my opinion, to uh, to what we find. Now, he, he, said, he also says this. He says, but for all of us, the truth comes from reality itself, from what is. Truth is our judgment about reality. The truth is, as Plato said in the Republic, Republic, one of the most important books in the history of Western civilization, to say of what is that it is, and to say of what is not that it is not, this truth which none of us owns is the spiritual bond that potentially unites us to all other members of our human race, as well as with whatever being, including the divine, that is the source of our reasoning powers. Again, this, this is just a classical um western thought this is uh it's true to christianity it's true to judaism it's true to aristotle and plato uh that there's there's truth in the world we have the capacity to detect it when uh, when we um, form our beliefs and they match reality 
then we know the truth. And Joe, a fulfilled life, a satisfied life. I mean, we we talk about, I mean, I talk about sometimes, I think, well, Ken, what if you had been a banker rather than a philosopher? How might your 401k look now? <laughs> or what what would what would having greater uh, wealth do to um, the life that I have, the life of my children have? But you know, from a, a biblical point of view and from a Western classical point of view, um, there's nothing more important than discovering the truth. And of course, Jesus says, you know, you what if what if you gain the whole world? but lost your soul? Mm-hmm. What What if you were able to acquire, you know, more money than you could possibly spend? I mean, I, I think of some people today, I, I think of the, uh, the, the head of Amazon, uh, that, you know, Jeff Bezos. Mm-hmm. Bezos. Um, can he spend all that? Can his kids spend all that? Government can take quite a bit of it, by the way, but uh, still the idea w- is that if we're made to discover the truth, if we're made for truth, goodness, and beauty, then we have to be very careful that we don't engage in idolatry where we fall prey to things that are temporal goods, instrumental goods. By the way, money is an instrumental good. Um, it's not like you should take you know, go go to your bank and take out hundred dollar bills and and put them put them on your table and worship them. No, that money is something that's going to allow you to buy food. It's going to allow you to pay your mortgage. It's going to allow you to, um, you know, help your help your kids go to school. It's an instrumental good. But what's the greater good? The greater good is truth goodness and and beauty yeah i'm uh in looking at the quote the the last two quotes uh the one just prior to the one you read i'm struck by this line this is why the modern day denial of truth is at the same time a denial of real human communication and consequently in place of truth an exaltation of power i would have thought that in place of truth there'd be falsehood or you know, something else. But if I'm reading that correctly, no, it's an exaltation of power. That's that's scary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you, we, again, we think about our, think about the American nation. Um, Jefferson, who is looked at very critically, increasingly critically, um, even though he, you know, wrote the um, uh, some of our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, for example, even though uh, he started one of the great universities, the University of Virginia, of course, he was a slave owner. And that is seen as kind of the original sin uh, of, of people like Jefferson. But, you know, Jefferson would say and has said that what makes America different is that we persuade people by reason, not by force. And that's a that, that's an interesting idea. Uh, how do I persuade people? Is it merely power? Is is language? Is it just is it just the capacity to somehow get what I want? Or am I using 
reason and language and arguments to persuade person that this is true, that this is correct. So again, it's it's very challenging to think that our universities, some of the great universities in our country uh, have struggled. Now, a fourth point uh, that Shaw makes is he has a comment about students and their knowledge or lack of knowledge of the Bible. So our fourth point is that students are ignorant of Scripture. He says the Bible has profound things to tell us, things we clearly ought to know. We now have students in class, even those who have gone to church or synagogue all their lives, who have not the faintest accurate idea about what is said in Scripture, a work that almost every generation before this era had read carefully, either to understand or to dispute or to live by. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that is that is a big challenge. I mean, one of the points I make in my book, Christianity Cross-Examined, is that the old atheists were more formidable than the new atheists, because the old atheists knew scripture. They had studied Christianity. They, they knew the Sermon on the Mount. They knew the arguments that were classically given, and they, they felt they could challenge it. I think in many ways, the new atheists, it's more rhetoric. It's more, I'm going to embarrass you. I'm going to shame you. Well, you know, in, in many respects, if if people, particularly students, don't know what Scripture teaches, I mean, not only not only are we sometimes told that uh, somehow reading the Bible is somehow un-American or illegal, but I would say that if you don't know, if you don't have a basic knowledge of the message of the Old and New Testaments, you're not educated. If you don't have a basic knowledge of the Judeo-Christian scriptures, you you can't call yourself an educated person in the West. Now, now again, skeptics before, and I like how he I like how he puts it that almost every generation before this era had read carefully either to understand or to dispute or to live by. Well, you can't dispute something you don't know. Right. Point number five, um, most of the students and the professors at the university have accepted a relativistic view of truth without rigorously examining the idea. Now, here's here's what Shaw says. He says, by the time they reach the universities, most students have already absorbed this dubious doctrine of relativism, the premises of which they have not intellectually examined for their validity. They are simply accepted as if they contain within themselves no contradiction. Contemporary students can assume that their professors in their hearts maintain and carry to further extremes mostly the same contradictory doctrine of relativism. Where does one go when the university and cultural system fail to be good guides and become instead sources of confusion and hindrances to truth. Let me let me read that question again at the end. He says, where does one go when the university and cultural system 
fail to be good guides and become instead sources of confusion and hindrances to truth. Mm. Well, we call it the dark ages. Mm. We see a decline in our culture. We see a decline in our great university system. Um, relativism is unworkable. Relativism with regard to truth, with regard to morality, it's not only unworkable, it's incoherent. There are all kinds of problems with it. And Shaw says a real difficulty is today students just kind of swallow it, hook, line, and sinker. And they haven't been taught, you know, to, to challenge the idea. And of course, uh, could I say that in some respects, this kind of parallels the church? I mean, how much do our young people at church know about the Bible? How much do young Christian people as they face culture? I mean, I'm a baby boomer. I'm near the end of the baby boomer generation. Um, I remember the 1960s and 1970s, the countercultural movement, the focus on uh, music and things of that nature. Um, you know, the the idea here is that many of those values uh, were, you know, ran contrary to kind of traditional ideas. So I think that I think that these are are very critical points that that he is making. Yeah. Uh, a, que a question, Ken, um, yeah. for someone, let's say there's a, a student out there right now who's listening and says what I encounter all the time in my circle of friends or even uh, with people who are educating me is that you are awfully arrogant to assume you have the truth. And it just doesn't make you look good to walk around saying, I've got the truth and you don't. We're all trying to figure it out. We're all learning as we go. No one can claim to know the truth. So how do you how do you respond to that? Somebody who's trying to engage someone who has that kind of attitude? Well, I, I, I certainly respect a, a more modest view. I mean, I, I think that if somebody said, look, you know, tr truth is a hard thing to know. There are a lot of competing claims out there. People have differing ideas. Uh, maybe we ought to be a little more humble, you know, as we approach these kinds of things. Well, that, that would be one thing, and I, I would be somewhat sympathetic to that idea. However, I think what we're being told is there's no way of knowing the truth. Well, wait a second. If, if there's no way to know the truth, then you know, no, you know enough about the truth to know you can't know it. I mean, there's something logically incoherent about these kinds of ideas. Certainly, it's the case that... Uh, you know, you, you may have to work really hard uh, at times to define the truth, and you may have to defend the truth from contradictory claims. Um, but to simply dismiss it all, on, on what basis? I mean, again, if you say there is no truth, well, I guess there's one truth, uh, that there's no truth. So the system, I think, is, I think the word is convoluted. And, and to say that, you know, you can't know the truth or that we can't have a moral principle, 
there are ideas that contradict those kind of kind of concepts and um that's where i think that's where i think a good university joe is a place where you're challenged where you're in a place where you you are presented with truth claims and then you examine those views and you go back and forth and you're allowed to think for yourself i mean after all, in a, in a Western civilization context, education has always been thought to be that the student will develop their own independent perspective on things. They're not told, uh, you know, the conclusion of the argument. They're presented, they're presented with ideas and they're encouraged to critically analyze those kind of things. So I don't have a problem with somebody who says, hey, wait a second here. You know, you, you, you're a Christian. You believe the Bible is true. But what about Hinduism? What about, what about Islam? What about atheism? I would say, look, let's, let's welcome all that. Let's, let's look at those issues. Let's find out what we have in common. Let's debate those kinds of issues. But to just kind of wholesale reject objective truth and morality Again, I think it's I think it's self-defeating. Now, I do want to say something, Joe, about what Shaw might say is some of the ways of kind of combating this. And again, the next five will cover. Uh, I've kind of arbitrarily read Shaw's book and said, here are, I think, the 10 things that really stand out to me. It's not like he has a list of 10. He has all kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he does in his book, and I really like it, he has, you know, various little uh, sidebars. Uh, for example, here's a sidebar. He says, five classic texts on philosophy, uh, good men and death, uh, and here's that list. He says the the Apology, the Credo, and the Phaedo of Plato. Plato, of course, was a storyteller. I like to say if Plato were alive today, he'd work for Disney. He likes to tell stories. He likes to have people dialoguing, going back and forth. So the the first philosophy text I ever read was the Apology, the Credo, and the Phaedo where Socrates is kind of the central figure, and he goes around interrogating people and interrogating himself. Well, uh, that would be a great place for young people today. Start reading some, some of the Socratic dialogues of Plato. Uh, then he mentions the account of the death of Christ in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 21. You know, on my recent vacation, I decided that I was going to read again through the four Gospels. And uh, there are a couple things that hit me. It wasn't the first time they hit me, but it, but it was very powerful. Uh, one of the things that struck me, Joe, was Jesus of Nazareth is a miracle worker from the get-go. I mean, the Gospels are filled with his miraculous touching people, healing people, um, that he's he's always moving toward the idea of compassion. That was one thing that struck me. Another thing that struck me was that uh, the, the individuals who had the greatest clarity about the identity of Jesus were the demons. Mm. 
when he cast out the demons, they they had no equivocation about you are the holy one of God, the son of God. They they're the ones who said we have a high Christology. Mm. It's it's the demons who mm. who did that kind of thing. What about opening up? What what about just opening up the Gospels and read through Mark? I started with Mark, then I went to Luke, then I went to Matthew, then I read John. This is what Shaw's representing. He says number three, Cicero on duties. Uh, let me give you a little background about Cicero, uh, a great Roman philosopher. I mentioned that his book, The Hortensius, turned St. Augustine's mind upside down. But Cicero was martyred because he challenged truth. And there's a there's a great quote in our second group of five points from Shaw that uh, Cicero is one of those great individuals who died for his view of truth. I mean, I mean that's a that's a very powerful point in the history of Western civilization. People who have pressed for objective truth, some of them have been put to death, and uh, the number one is Jesus Himself. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, here is a Boethius. Boethius was a great Christian philosopher in the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages. His book, The Consolation on Philosophy. Sir Thomas More. Uh, a man for all seasons. He was a Catholic who uh, took a great deal of challenge from uh, the Protestants within the British context, and and so what we're getting here is what about what about reading some some classic texts? And Shaw also goes on to say this. He says there are six classic texts, and he calls them never to be left unread, never to be left unread. Uh, he says, read Plato, uh, the Georgius, read Aristotle, Nicomachean Ethics, Marcus Aurelius. By the way, Marcus Aurelius, St. Augustine's first name was Aurelius, named after uh, both, both Caesar Augustus and Marcus Aurelius. Uh, the Meditations, I saw that just the other day. On my vacation, I saw the Meditations book in a Barnes & Noble, and I thought, ah, interesting. A fourth uh, book that Shaw recommends, of course, Augustine, The Confessions, Pascal, The Pensees, Edward Burke, Reflections on the Revolution in France. Uh, and then he says the, the Republic, the City of God, the Summa Theologia. These are classic, these are classic works. Now let me let me make a point here, Joe, again, that these are these are classic works we've talked about. I mentioned Augustine. I mentioned Pascal. I mentioned uh, Plato, Aristotle, Marcus Aurelius. These are people that are prized within the Catholic tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they are increasingly people that are prized by Christians within all traditions. And, and again, um, uh, you know, Joe, that I have been... Uh, I've taken criticism because I'm said to be too friendly to the Catholic Church. Um, well, I don't know. If you read the book that I co-authored, The Cult of the Virgin, you might not think I'm so friendly all the time. But here is a point that I really, I really do want to make, and that is 
I've benefited a great deal from reading authors within the broader Catholic tradition. Now, I, I want to make the point, though, that I don't think Augustine belongs to the Catholic Church. I think he was a Catholic. In some ways, he was a Roman Catholic. In some ways, I don't think he was a Roman Catholic. Uh, but I don't think I don't think Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Blaise Pascal, while they were all Catholics, I think they also belonged to Christians in other traditions. And of course, even while there are still today very strong differences between particularly Catholics and Protestants, um, in many respects, I wonder: Do we have a greater enemy? Do we have a greater challenge on our hands? And it may take the cooperation of people who have a classical Christian view uh, to, to combat these ideas. And so th these are some of the things that come out of this little book uh, by Shaw. And uh, I will again make the point that I think there's so much within the Christian traditions. This is one of the reasons why I'm I'm interested in the church fathers. I, I want to learn from them. Uh, I want to learn from the Eastern Orthodox tradition. I want to learn from the Protestant tradition. You know, Joe, I, I want to say this too, that I think it's a shame that so many people uh, in, in parts of the evangelical tradition, they're so turned off to what they call Calvinism that they will never read John Calvin. And in my opinion, um, I think John Calvin was arguably the greatest biblical scholar who ever lived. And whether you accept the five points of Calvinism or classical reform theology or not, if you just took Calvin's commentaries, when you read his commentaries, it's like, it's like reading somebody today. He he just has a, a clarity, a universal understanding. And and again, it's uh it's I think tragic at times that some of the great Christian thinkers, you know, and and certainly it works on the other side. I've met reformed people that would never read Wesley, that would never read some of the, you know, the Arminian thinkers. I would just I would just challenge that idea in this sense that you know it's powerful when you look at something like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. That's a lot of Christianity. Now, now the creeds don't tell us about the authority of Scripture, and they don't tell us the exact relationship between grace, faith, and works. But if a person affirms the Nicene Creed, in my view, that's a lot of Christianity, and. Christians, whether they be Wesleyan or whether they be Reformed or whether they be Catholic or Orthodox or Lutheran or Anglican, um, we believe in objective truth. We believe in objective goodness. We believe people are made in the image of God. I think we have more in common than we have in terms of what divides us. And so here I am reading this book by Shaw, a Jesuit after all. I mean, uh, Protestants have always been a little critical of particularly the Jesuits, but Schall is, he's a brilliant scholar. And as a Protestant myself, I was impressed. 
all right, we'll be talking about six more, uh, no, I'm sorry, five more points, points six through 10 that you've uh, written down on the next podcast. Uh, I've enjoyed these five and uh, thank you for bringing these insights from Shaw to us. If people want to get that book, I don't know if they can, Ken, but it's called A Student's Guide to Liberal Learning, James Shaw. Uh, how did you get it, by the way? It is available on Amazon. Oh, okay. Um, and you can go on Wikipedia and read a little bit about James V. Shaw. Mm -hmm. And some of his books are listed there. But um, this was readily available. And uh, he died in 2019, I think, right as the COVID issue. So uh, he's he, he passed away just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Ken, people have been reading your books and they've been contacting you via Twitter or Facebook. Uh, if you want to do so, you can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. But here are some of the comments that have come in from people who have read uh, your books and have been influenced by your thinking. Classic Christian Thinkers is an excellent book just finished it and started confessions as a result. Cool. Cherie Mialare. I butchered that, I'm sure, but uh, thank you, Cherie. Uh, here's another one. Classic Christian Thinkers is a great book. I learned a lot. Tom Warner. And another comment here. Ken Samples is a class act. Knowledgeable, logical, and winsome. Chad Gross, apologetics.com. Another one. I enjoy all your books. They have a lot of great info packed into one place, and you have a great writing style. Keep writing. <laughs> Philo, Theo, Apollo, Brendan. <laughs> Thank you uh, for that one. And one more. Without a doubt is in my top three recommendations when people ask. Krista Bontrager. Yeah, I know that name. Yeah. Well, congratulations, Ken, on, on these comments. Uh, it's, it's great to see that, and people are benefiting from your books. And that's one of the reasons we like to talk about books and recommend them here on this podcast. Uh, you're an educator. You like to bring people along. I know Dave and I can attest to learning a lot from you personally and some of your book recommendations. So keep those coming. You know, we're all benefiting from them. All right. Uh, again, uh, the way to reach Ken is at RTB underscore K samples. Ken also writes a blog. Check that out reflectionsbyken.wordpress.com. All right, that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.